0: Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we know from the Psalms, the world in which we live is a dry and weary land where there's no water. But yet, Lord, your word has provided your refreshment, Lord, for us. As we're told in Ephesians, you wash your church with the washing of, of the word and Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just refresh us this morning. If we feel dry, Lord, pray that you'd refresh us. Lord, you promised there in John 7 that those who believe in you will have from their abundance of their being rivers of living water. And Lord, I just pray that we would have that experience as well from your spirit, that Lord, we would have that sense that your spirit is flowing from our lives, Lord. But Lord, we pray that your love would flow over us as we learn about your amazing grace this morning, that we would have a, a greater understanding by your spirit as he communicates these truths from you to us, Lord, that they would just be a reality in our heart. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So since the, so since the movie release in 1964, children have been singing about this familiar life-changing word. See if you can guess the word from these lyrics. When the cat has got your tongue and there's no need to dismay, just summon up this word and you got a lot to say, but better use it carefully because it could change your life. To that a man testified, for example, one night I said it to me girl and me girl became my wife. Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious, if you say it loud enough, you will always sound precocious. The word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Good, I'm glad you said it because I, can, I can't say it all together now there's another word I want to focus on this morning, and that's grace. Now, this, grace, this word grace is a more ordinary word. It's easier, easier you know, to pronounce, which I'm happy about that. But when you think about the meaning, it's far more wonderful, glorious, and majestic than anything that man can summon up, than anything that man can make up. Grace should be on the lips of every child of God, but it should also be planted deep within our hearts, deep within our minds, because when you understand the grace of God, it will change your life. And that's been the testimony throughout church history. Guys like Augustine in the 300s came across, across God's grace and it changed his life. And then you got a guy named by the name of Martin Luther in the Reformation period as he was a Catholic priest teaching the book of Romans. He came across it and it changed his life. John Wesley, a discouraged missionary, was in a church one day in London and the pastor was reading a preface to uh, 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 Luther's commentary and he heard it and he said God changed his life. Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement in the book, Why Grace Changes Everything, said that he came across Romans, the grace of God, and God changed his life. It took him from a roller coaster to a steady life of rejoicing in him. And that's what God can do as we think about his grace. So what is God's grace? Some have defined it getting what you don't deserve. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this. He says, the grace of God is favor that is unmerited that is totally unrelated to every or any question of human merit. J.I. Packard says this, he says, the grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit, it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who had no reason to expect anything but severity. Some have looked at Romans, Romans and also grace as an acronym. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. So God's grace. And really, if you think about God's grace, it's a very large subject in the Bible. And like a diamond, it has many facets. You see it in both the Old and New Testament. This morning, I want to focus our attention on one facet of God's grace, and that's God's saving grace as revealed in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul summarizes that saving grace in Ephesians 2.8-9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Greek language scholars point out that the gift that Paul refers to in these verses is God's saving grace. God's saving grace is a total package that God lavishes upon the sinner by faith alone. Now God's package, this gift that he's given to us, has different aspects of God's grace as he works in our life. There's what's called justification. You see, we have been declared and we've been saved by our faith alone. We've been declared righteous. We have been freed from the penalty and the guilt of our sin. But also we're sanctified, sanctification. We are presently being saved from the power of sin and conformed into the image of Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. But one day there will be glorification. We will be saved from the presence of sin by entering glory either by death or by the rapture. And this morning as we look at Romans 5, 1 through 11, we see these three acts of God's grace and salvation revealed to us. Now we're gonna look at Romans five as an outline of what Paul has expressed in Romans chapters one through eight. And that's what we're looking at on Wednesday morning with the men. We're gonna see this outline and then we're gonna take a couple verses from within Romans one through eight so we can really get an understanding of this wonderful truth called grace. So as we talk about grace this morning, we'll focus our thoughts around three points. Number one, we are saved by grace. Number two, we are sanctified by grace. And number three, we are secure for future glory by grace. So first, we're saved by grace there at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. The word therefore indicates that Paul is now summing up and applying what he had previously taught in chapters 1 through 4. And this truth, he says, is that you're justified by faith. Now, in order to really understand justification and the grace of God behind it, we need to first understand our condition and the reason why we need to be justified. You see, grace is like a diamond, but it really shines forth when you put a black velvet underneath it, right? It really shines forth. And that's what Romans shows us. It shows us that we need God's grace. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1:18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men." You see, God's just response to ungodliness, God's just response to unrighteousness and sin is wrath. It has to be judgment. He's a just being and sin is an offense to his person and also to his word. He must respond in judgment. Well, there's a problem because you and I, all mankind are under sin. We're all unrighteous. Flip over to Romans 3.10. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul here quotes Psalm 14.3, and it gives us a spiritual assessment of all mankind. And that assessment is this. God says there is none righteous, no, not one. All descendants born of Adam and Eve with the exception of Jesus are born with a sin nature. And also they have imputed sin upon them. So we are all under this wrath of God because... We are unrighteous. But wait, can't you go to heaven by being a good person or keeping the law, especially the Ten Commandments? And the Bible says, no, you can't. Look down at verse 20 of Romans 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law contains the Ten Commandments. And Paul says, nobody can be saved. No flesh can be saved by the law. The law shows you that you're a sinner, that you're not perfect. Here's a little test that you can apply to yourself. Have you ever put anything before God? Have you ever lied? Have you ever coveted something that's not yours? That's just three of them, and I've already broke all three quickly. And James tells us in his book that if you break one law, you're guilty of them all, James 2.10. And those who break God's law are under the curse of God's law, which is wrath, Galatians 3.10. And so you and I, we have this condition, it's called sin. We sin because we're sinners, we're born with that nature. You can't work for salvation. Isaiah in 64.6 compares man's works with God's righteousness, the righteousness that we need, and we're told that all human works are like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. You can't do anything to make yourself righteous. Also, we can never keep God's law perfectly. And so we're all under this sin. If you work for the government or the Navy, you know bottom line up front, right? You're a sinner, unable to save yourself. Mankind's only hope is for God to provide righteousness, which is received by faith alone. But there's good news now. God has provided that righteousness through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, and you can receive that righteousness by faith. Look at verse 21 of Romans 3. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no different. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. The word sin means missing the mark, but it also means you continually hit the wrong mark. God in his grace knows this, and he has provided a way for us to be saved through it. Sinners can receive his righteousness by faith, and he's made it possible by sending Jesus to die for us in our place on the cross. And then he proved it by the resurrection of the dead. He said, it's not gonna be a mystery. I'm gonna demonstrate to you that I accept the sacrifice of Jesus in your place by raising him again bodily from the dead. Paul goes on in Romans three twenty four, Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God made salvation possible. He has made it possible for man to receive his righteousness, the righteousness that we need, but this gift has come at a great cost. You see, God had to send his own son for the world. And Paul brings out what that meant in verses 24 through 26. First, in verse 24, we see that he was a redemption. He provided a redemption. Redemption means a ransom payment. Christ's death on the cross paid the ransom of our sin in full. The sinner can be released from the slavery of sin, the slavery of death, and the slavery of Satan. You remember before Jesus yielded his spirit there on the cross, what did he cry out? It is finished, totalistai, John 19, 30. And that means paid in full. In the first century, they would use this term in the marketplace, and they actually found receipts with the word totalistai on it, meaning that it has been paid in full. It was a a commercial term. He paid our price in full. Verse 25, God provided a propitiation for our sin by Jesus' blood, Jesus' death provided an acceptable sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against sin. In the Old Testament, it was the mercy seat. And actually, this word is actually used of the mercy seat. And so God, his wrath is against sin, Romans 1.18. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took that wrath for us. He died in our place. So you and I don't have to bear that wrath. We can be freed from it. In verse 26, God provided a means that he could freely justify the sinner, but yet remain just and holy. You see, God can't compromise his justice. He is a fair judge. And so therefore, he must judge sin, but yet God is a loving father who also wants to save all mankind. So this dilemma was solved through the cross of Jesus Christ. While on the cross, Jesus received both God's justice, but also through the cross, he can also give his mercy and his grace as a loving father. So in other words, the same God who condemned you was the same God who stepped down from the throne and died in your place for you. That's what it teaches. Islam, any other religion, compromises God's justice, compromises God's grace. Oh, he'll forgive you. You're a sinner. Yeah, because you do bad things, but he'll he'll forgive you. By what basis of blood? No, I don't know. It's just by being a good person. No, God can't do that. That's an unjust God. Our God is just, but yet he's also gracious. He's provided the sacrifice for us. Now, there's another aspect of Jesus' work on the cross as it relates to our justification, and it's the word imputation. Your Bible might translate it accounting or credit, um, but this term is actually taught by Paul in Romans 4, and he talks about Abraham. And he says, remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and where God took him outside and said, hey, look at the stars. This is how your descendants are gonna be. And Abraham believed God, And the Bible says God accounted it to him for righteous, meaning that God credited his righteousness to Abraham. And that's what the word imputation means. And then Paul goes on in verses 22 through 24 of Romans 4 and says, hey, by the way, that was written for you and I to teach us how Jesus applies his righteousness to you and I today. There's a physical example of imputation in the Bible, and it's given in the book of Philemon. Philemon was a letter that Paul wrote to a master his runaway servant had had run away and he stole some stuff from him. And so this guy ran away, Onesimus, his name is, and he met Paul and he got saved. And so then Paul wrote back to Philemon and said, hey, by the way, I met your servant, Onesimus, and by the way, he's a Christian now, but I know he owes you a lot of debt, but hey, you know what? Philemon 118, put his debt on my account. That's imputation. You see, Paul would now become the debtor in Philemon's place, Paul didn't commit the crime, but yet he would be willing to pay his debt. And that's exactly what God did for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? We have a debt that we couldn't pay, but God sent his son to pay a debt he didn't know. God placed the sin in the world upon him. And so when Jesus died on the cross, God took the sins of the world and placed upon place all of them upon Jesus, and as a result of that, God is now able to take Jesus' righteousness and give it to you and I. The word imputation is actually a banking term, and it means to place on one's ledger or to place into one's account. Jesus, when he began the Sermon on the Mount, he wanted the Jews to understand true salvation. And so he says, blessed are the, what, the poor in spirit. The Jews thought they were saved just because they were Jews, just because they kept the law, and Jesus said, it doesn't work like that. You must first realize that you're poor in spirit. You're a sinner. And when we recognize that, we, we come to Jesus for the salvation. We're bankrupt when God looks at our account. But yet when I put my faith in Jesus as my savior, God takes Jesus righteousness and now accounts it to me. He puts it in my bank account. So now when God sees my account, my ledger, he sees me as righteous, just as righteous as Jesus. Now this is where Paul works to Romans 5.1. Based on this transaction, by Jesus' work, by faith alone, God justifies the sinner. Justification means that God has declared the sinner righteous on behalf of provided righteousness. That's what justification is, and that's all by grace. Now, back to Romans 5.1. Notice two things before we move on. First, justification is by faith alone apart from works. You can't work for your salvation. We've already established that. But second... Justification is past tense. It's not a process. It's a one-time act of God in the past, but the results carry on now into the present. You have been justified by faith. The Catholic Church teaches that you are continually infused with this grace through sacraments as you are saved over, over time. And the Bible says, no, Luther and those guys understood that. You're not saved over time. You're saved once and for all when you put your faith in Jesus you're justified by faith alone. The sinner is declared righteous. And we're also born again, of course, right? We have the spirit living with us. And that brings us to our second point. We are sanctified now by grace at the end of verse one into verse four. Now, Paul goes on to establish the argument that, God, that God's grace is not only sufficient to save us in the past, but his grace is sufficient to sustain us and also to sanctify us in the present, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God now has declared the sinner righteous, and on that basis, we have certain blessings now that we can enjoy as a believer. They're present. And one of those blessings is we have peace with God. You might not, you might not have known this, but before you were a believer, you were actually the enemy of God in your heart. Colossians 121 says, "In you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Romans 5.10, you can go down to verse 10 of chapter 5. Paul there makes it a point saying that Christ reconciled you to God while you were his enemy. Reconciled means to render savable. You see, God loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us. And so there we were, enemies of God in our hearts, you know, with no affection towards God, but yet God was the one who acted first in his grace. And he was the one who made peace with mankind. He reconciled us. In other words, he removed the enmity that stood between the sinner and himself, making it possible for whosoever will believe to become his friend. No longer an enemy now, but his friend. And this is good news. The war is over. We should be celebrating as Christians, not always discouraged and bummed out, right? Just like at the end of World War II, man, they were celebrating just no kissing each other, kind of thing, right? Remember, COVID-19 too, so don't do that. If you're a believer, God's not mad at you. He's not against you. He's for you and he's on your side. And under grace and under the new covenant, we should not think of our relationship with God as an ancient vassal treaty, right? One of those treaties that an ancient king would make as they would go into these different cities and they'll say, hey, by the way, we're more powerful than you and we're gonna come and destroy your city. But if you pay us money each month, we, we won't. And then if they fail, they would come and build siege mounds around the city, starve everybody out. And then finally, when they were starving, they would open up the gates and would kill everybody and take the women and children. That's what the ancient, ancient kings would do. That's not what God's like. God is not like that. God is a loving father. God is a gracious king. He says, you're now my friend. So we shouldn't think that I always have to work my way back into the presence of God, that I somehow need to appease him to keep peace or to make him love me. You don't do that with your children. And yet the Bible says that we're not only friends, but we're children of God, First John 3, 1 John 3.1. If you being evil know how to love your children, how much more will your father in heaven love you? So Jesus said in Matthew 7.11, God loves us. Yes, there are times when he has to discipline us, Right? because we're messing up. And the reason he does that is because he loves us. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But that doesn't change your position with him. That doesn't change your favor with him. That doesn't change the fact that he's your father and you're his child. So we need to realize that. And oftentimes people who have struggles, maybe you have an addiction and you've been fighting it your entire life and you're always living under this feeling that man, somehow I just need to keep this peace with God. God loves you. He's your friend. He knows your frame that you're but dust. And he has given you love and grace that you can enjoy. Paul goes on in verse 2 and says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The believer is now presently standing in God's grace. What a contrast in comparison to our position before in God's wrath in Romans 18. You see, the place in which we stand is God's Paul makes a lot about the believer's position. It's kind of of some of his themes as he teaches through his epistles. And one of those themes is position. God has blessed you because of who you are in Christ. He sees you in Christ, in the beloved, in him. And as a result, you have all these different blessings that God pours on your life. Because you're so good, no. But because you have faith in the cross of Jesus Christ and he blesses you as a result. And one of those here is, is you stand in grace, which is the sphere of God's grace. It's the sphere of God's grace. When I think about this, I think of that Matt Revin song where, you know, that God's grace has found us, your grace finds me. And he talked about breathing in God's grace and breathing out his praise. We live in the sphere of God's grace. We operate, we live in God's grace, which means that your favor, your love, your blessings, all these things from God are not based upon your works. They're based upon his grace. They're unconditional. We don't affect them by our works. We don't cancel them out by our works. And if they did, then it wouldn't be grace. It would be works. And Paul makes that point. He says, if God is a debtor, he's not a giver. So either grace is grace or it's not grace. And then he's a debtor. And he's not. God has provided his grace for us. Sadly, believers, sometimes trapped in legalism, live their entire Christian life on a roller coaster. Always up and down, always feeling the effects of the guilt of their sin, their failures. And man, I'm doing good today, I have my devotions, right? And then tomorrow, go to work, and it's work. Well, Labor Day is tomorrow, but after that, right? I go and I mess up. So okay, so I need to work my way back in to to God's favor, to God's love, and then he'll bless me. And Paul says, no, you stand in God's grace. He is continually loving you and, and, and pouring his favor upon you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It should set us free. You have been justified. Your guilt is gone. He has declared you righteous. You see, the Old Testament saint didn't have that. And the Bible says that in the book of Hebrews. When they would bring these sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of the bulls and goats cannot remove their sin. It only reminded them that they had to bring another sacrifice next year. But the believer in Jesus Christ, our guilt is gone. For the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ And now we remain in the sphere and God continues to bless us from it. Now, Paul takes this to his theological conclusion now at the end of verse two. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word hope is the absolute assurance of future glory. And so the believer can now rejoice, exalt, boast, and praise God because of his grace in that he will finish what he started. Since salvation is by grace from start to finish, you and I can know that he will finish what he has started. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If salvation wasn't by grace, all by grace, you couldn't be confident in it because it's based upon you and we fail. But God has established salvation by grace from start to finish. It's false to think that salvation begins by grace alone, but now we must maintain our salvation by works. Paul says, just as justification is not based on works, our sanctification is not based upon works. We stand in grace and we can praise God because one day we're gonna be with him in glory. But what about the trials of life? The persecutions, the temptations that we'll face. You know, will they overtake us and pull us away and not allow us to see this glory that God has for us? And Paul says, no. But God, through his grace, is able to sustain you. Look at verse three. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Not only do tribulations pull us, you know, not pull us away from God and, and cancel out our hope, but, but God says actually we can glory in them. We can glory in them because God has provided the sustainment for us in grace. Tribulations is not the great tribulation, right? It's the present pressings that, that you and I face as we walk with Jesus. Afflictions, distresses. There are things like physical suffering, persecutions, temptation, whatever they might be, whatever... Whatever God in His providence has allowed you to go through, Paul says, God has grace for you. The believer can be encouraged that He will sustain us. We can glory. We can worship God through Him. And Paul was a living example of that. He didn't just preach it, He lived it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and 9, Paul had what's called the thorn in his flesh. Some believe it was an eye disease. And Paul three times prayed that the Lord would remove this. And what did Jesus say? He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded, "Most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me." The Greek word that Paul used for boast is the same word that he used here in this text. Rejoice," Romans 5:2 and 11, and glory in Romans 5:3. The believer can rejoice because God is able to give you sufficient grace. Suffering and trials are easy to talk about, right? But when you're in them, they're tough. It's reality. But this morning, God has sufficient grace for you. He understands where you are, and the Bible says that Jesus is our great High Priest, able to sympathize with us. He's the only person who really understands what you're going through. And then we're told in Hebrews four sixteen, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Don't think of this coming boldly to the throne as the DMV, right? Or you gotta like wait in line, and then you get up there and you realize that you don't have the right stuff and you gotta go back or whatever. No, remember, you're in the sphere of God's grace. You're standing in it already. So you, all you do is ask for it, and God's able to give it to you. All right? We don't go back and forth, we remain in it, and God's able to continue to pour it upon your life. Not only do we stand in grace and are sustained in it, but God sanctifies us through it. He changes us, look at the end of verse three. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. God is able to sanctify us by his providence through his grace. Tribulation produces endurance. Endurance is the ability to continue to work in the face of opposition and obstacles. God builds your spiritual muscles through these things, right? Endurance doesn't come by just sitting around, right? I wish it did right, kind of thing. You can't just buy a foam roller or whatever, right, and build endurance. No, you gotta go out there and endure. If you're gonna run a mile, it's gonna be tough to start. But then once you get there, you're like, okay, I can, maybe I can do a mile and a half or whatever, right? Sometimes God stretches our limits and he stretches our comfort zone and he does it because he loves us and he wants us to grow in character. And that's what Paul says, Patient, patience and proven character. The word character, I'm told, was used of testing different types of metals. And God wants to make us gold through our circumstances. Job recognized this in his circumstance. Job says in Job 23.10, "'For he knows the way that I take. "'When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold.'" So just as the refiner will turn up that refiner's fire to burn off the dross, to to make that beautiful piece of gold, God, in the same way, will at times in his providence allow certain things to come and give us grace through him so that we can build character through them. He doesn't leave us orphans. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his grace, but he wants to build us up through them. Not only do they change us, they set our hope. They take us back to reality. If we want to be like the believers in Hebrews 11 called the Hall of Faith who focused on that eternal city, the New Jerusalem, whose maker and builder is God well, we might have to go through some of the things that they went through. Oftentimes we look at those guys and we think, like, oh man, I don't want to be like those guys. And then we realize the reason why their eyes were focused on the future was because they went through a lot in the present. And God does that. He sets our minds on things of the above and not on things of the earth. It was Pastor Greg Glory who said that heaven is even more real since his son has gone home to be with Jesus. And Sometimes God does that through our lives. He makes heaven real. He makes it more Right, a more of a reality when we realize that this life is fleeting and it's, you know, and it's passing by like a vapor. But we set our eyes on things of above and that's where God begins to bless us. We're not blessed when he set our eyes on things of the earth, but we change and we're sanctified as we set our eyes on things above. Third, we're secure for future glory by grace in Romans 5, 5 through 11. Paul goes on and says, Now hope does not disappoint, Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The future hope of the believer, Paul says, will not be disappointed. Disappointed means to be put to shame because of failed promises. God's not gonna fail in his promise to bring you to glory. He's gonna fulfill what he started. And we've been given present reminders of that. He's promised us that. What are some of these reminders that you and I have? First, we have the Savior. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And Peter, writing to his audience, which were going through persecutions, he says, hey, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a living hope. It's it's provable. You can show it. It's one of the most provable historical facts that we have. Because Jesus is alive, I know one day I will be alive in glory. Second, we have the scriptures And Jesus said, the scriptures will not be broken, John 10, 35. God has promised it in his word, and his promises are always yes and amen. And we have prophecy to prove it. Jesus fulfilled some 300 prophecies at his first coming, showing that the word of God is accurate, it's true, you can trust it, you can build your life upon it. It's that solid rock foundation Jesus spoke of, where the winds and and the tides come and wash away the unbelievers foundation, but the word of God, we can stand on his word, will see us through to the end. And third, we have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our guarantee, Ephesians 1.14 says. The Spirit is like an engagement ring given to the bride of Christ, to the believer. And just as you look at your engagement ring and know, to, to know that the promises are gonna be fulfilled, even so God has given us the Holy Spirit to remind us, hey, I'm gonna fulfill what I started now, one aspect of the Spirit's ministry in our life is fruit, right? The Bible says you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith alone, but God will produce fruit in your life. The faith that saves is never alone. It will produce good works. But also, the believer is reminded of God's love. And that's what Paul makes a point here in verse 5. God's love through the Spirit comes, up, comes over us like a river, pours out is not a trickle, it's a flood, it's a river that the Lord pours over us as we get, time, you know, get into his word and as we spend time with him. He reminds us over and over and over of his great love for us. And Paul shows us that here. He pours out this torrent of love by the inspiration of the Spirit in verses six to 11. So he says, you wanna talk about love? Well, let's talk about love for a second. And he's gonna present two arguments here to show us the extent of God's love and the assurance that we can have in future glory as a result of God's love for us. The two arguments really can be summarized as the following. First, in verses 6 through 10, Paul uses what's called the lesser to the greater argument. And here's what he says. And he says, God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you when you were weak, in verse 6. But not just weak, you were ungodly, at the end of verse 6. Not just ungodly, but sinners, in verse eight. And not just sinners, but his enemies, in verse 10. So he's going from the lesser to the greater. He says, you want to really see how much God loves you? Man, he loved you so much that not only this, this, but you are his enemy, and that's how much he loves you. And then Paul Paul flip-flops it now, in verses nine through 11, and now now he uses what's called the greater to the lesser argument to show what's called the too much mores of uh, of future security So here's what he says. He says, since God sent his son to die for us while we were enemies, we can now be assured that he will not forsake us now that we're his friends. So since God sent his son for us while we were enemies, we know since we're friends now, we've been reconciled by faith. We know that he'll deliver us from future wrath in verse 9 and also bring us to glory in verse 10. So that's really the focus of Paul's argument, and it's all to show us the love of God. So go back to verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so God sent his son into the world, not because man had prepared himself and made themselves ready. No, man was unrighteous. We didn't deserve it. We had no ability in ourselves to make ourselves righteous. We are ungodly without reverence or affection towards him. But it was at this perfect time, the time in the plan of God, it's actually spoken of in Daniel 9, 25 and 26 that actually is predicted when the Messiah would come. And so um, God, according to his plan in that perfect time, in due time, he sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. Verse seven, uh, uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It's rare for a person to die for a moral and upright person. It's possible that a person would be willing to die for a good in self-sacrificing in, in and uh, a person who does good. But these are rare, which is why the Medal of Honor isn't just given out every day, right? It's, it's, it's a rare act of valor that someone, you know, out of dedication does. But notice the contrast, though. But God sent his son to die for his enemies. How many people would send their son to die for the enemy in the fox pit across from them? Who's shooting at them? No one. Yet God sent his Son into the world when the world was against him. Romans 1 says that God has revealed himself through creation, but men what suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth means they push it away. They put it in a box and lock it up and throw it away. They want nothing to do with God. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that you and I were dead in sin and we were actually under the servitude of Satan to do his will. Actively against God his enemies, but it was in this time that God gave his son so that whosoever will believe can be saved. Paul goes on now in verse nine and says, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So if God in his love sent Jesus to save us from wrath, the wrath of of punishment through justification, while we're enemies, we know that he will not now forsake us for future wrath now that we're his friends. He said, of course not. There is wrath in the future, hell, right, for the person who has rejected Jesus Christ. But also there's the great tribulation, which Revelation 6 says is the wrath of God uh, upon a Christ-rejecting world. The believer has hope that we will be delivered from these things. We'll be delivered from hell. We're saved, we're born again, we're we're on our way to heaven. As far as the tribulation goes, we're going to be raptured before it. God can't put his beloved bride through wrath after he's already delivered it, delivered his bride from it. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through his death, uh, th- through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And so if God while we were enemies made peace to the cross and made us friends, will he not much more keep us secure and bring us to glory? And of course the answer is of course he will. So the believer has security. In, in God's grace. Now, what's Paul's conclusion? If you were to read chapters 1 through 8 and see these acts of grace that Paul reveals in justification in sanctification, right, chapters 6 and 7, and then finally glorification in Romans chapter 8, you would see that Paul gives a conclusion to his argument about these acts of grace. And I want you to look at this argument with me real fast, this conclusion that Paul gives. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul responds out with this response of praise as a result of God's goodness to us. He begins in Romans eight thirty one and says, "'What then shall we say to these things? "'If God is for us, who can be against us? "'He who did not spare his own son, "'but delivered him up for us all, "'how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? "'Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? "'It is God who justifies. "'Who is he who condemns? "'It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen.'" Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or fam- or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's response to grace was, wow. He was just overwhelmed by the love of God, and he gave another lesser to the greater argument. God loved us so much to save us while we were enemies. We can be certain that he'll protect us, that he'll freely give us all things that we need, that he'll defend us, he'll sustain us, and bring us to glory despite the trials or the temptations or even the spiritual enemies that you and I face in spiritual warfare. We can have assurance of that. I want to close with verse 11 of Romans 5. Paul says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The application for the believer this morning is God wants you to rejoice. God wants you to rejoice. It's a response. That's what God's, God wants from us. He wants us to respond. A lot of times people say, well, wait a second. If you preach grace, doesn't that give people a license to sin? And Paul addresses that question in Romans 6. He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we would even think like that. No, when you truly understand God's grace, it doesn't give you a license to sin. You won't want to sin. But the grace of God will flood your heart, as verse 5 says. That's the application The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. As I truly understand God's grace, it's like a flood of living water by the Holy Spirit that comes over me on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And the result of that is you will overflow. So if your heart is dry this morning, you're dry because you're trying to work your way into God's love, You're, you're dry because you're trying to be a better person, the Lord says, you know what, stop trying and just realize Paul used the word reckon a lot and he's not from Texas right but he but but reckon means to realize to establish is true so once the believer establishes that this is true then God's love will wash over us more and more and more what is godly service what is sacrifice what is worship it's not something I do because I have to what is telling people about Jesus it's not something I do because like a Jehovah's Witness, you know, they have to do it and because, you know, they want to be saved. No. Salvation is an overflow of God's river of love that flows over me. And my overflow is service. My overflow is sacrifice. My overflow is worship. I don't serve God because I want him to bless me. I'm blessed, and therefore, I serve God. Amen?